How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a time of one good scare. Let's talk about uh let's talk about this movie today. Let's yeah. act like people are walking in on our podcast discussion. <laughs> so everybody laugh at three, two, one. Let's <laughs> uh, love being here with you guys. So oh, oh well, hello. <laughs> and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you all for joining us for a very special roulette episode. Uh, quick question. Do you guys like watermelons? Only if they bite my ass. Oh, okay. All right. All right. That's an interesting way to check the uh, how ripe they are. <laughs> That's how you know. That's how you know. Uh, so uh, as Todd said, this is a roulette episode. If you are joining us for the first time or this is the first time you've, you've joined us for a roulette episode, what a roulette episode is, is usually in between these like longer form five, six, seven episode series that we do. We pick another movie to cover kind of at random. We've got a running list on Letterboxd. Uh, you can find it on my Letterboxd at Justin underscore Bishop and always, you know, you can leave a comment there and suggest other things if you want to. A lot of times these movies are ones that don't fit into another series. Like they don't fit into a the filmography of a director who we think we, we need to commit a whole series to or... Uh, they just don't thematically fit in with another series, but they're movies that are still very much worth talking about. So what we do is we just take that letterbox list and we just randomize it, shuffle it, because Letterbox has a great shuffle feature, and then whatever movie comes out on top, that's what we pick. And for this week, we picked a really fun one. This is the kind of movie that when I kind of came up with the concept for Cinema Shock Roulette, this is the movie, the kind of movie I wanted to talk about. You know, a movie that doesn't fit into any preconceived category. But it begs to be discussed. And now that you guys have seen that, I mean, I know, I think you had seen this before, Gary, but Todd, this is the first time for you. And I think oh, yeah. now that you've seen it, you understand why I feel like this is a movie that begs to be discussed. Uh, but more than anything, this is also the kind of movie that I like to discuss here because it's a movie that I love introducing people to. I love the idea that somebody is watching this movie for the first time ever because we're covering on this podcast, because this is the movie that like, once you watch it, the first time you see this movie is, is something you'll never forget because it is so utterly unique. Yeah. So today, for the latest Cinema Shock Roulette entry, we will be discussing Nobuhiko Obayashi's 1977 experimental horror comedy, House. House. I see in your eyes. 
I know you're scared of horror movie spoilers, but that's out of date. Step aside. These are karate movie spoilers. What a strange spoiler warning. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's on par for this movie, though. Sure, yeah, yeah. If you had done that and then just like, I don't know, chopped your own dick off, right? Uh, As you said that, it would have been as surprising as many other things that happened during this movie. Yeah. Uh, so no Buhiko, and I I will do my goddamn best to say these names correctly <laughs> during the course of this episode. Yep. Uh, I promise I am trying. Japanese is obviously not my um, not my first language or second language, but I am going to do my darndest to <laughs> to say these names the way that and, they're supposed to be said. And, and we, I apologize and we, if I don't we, do well. And we applaud your efforts, Justin. <laughs> A for effort is all I can ask for, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so You're still no- our resident cinema samurai. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. It just sounded good. I like the other yeah, I like it. Cinema, yeah. cinema samurai. I'm into it. That's what I'll start telling, calling myself at the beginning of uh, when we introduce ourselves at the beginning I, of the podcast. I approve. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Nobuhiko Obayashi. He was born in January of 1938 in the city of Onomichi, Japan, which is in the Hiroshima pre- uh, prefecture. And his early childhood, as you can imagine, based on the year he was born, was spent against the backdrop of World War II. So writing about Obayashi for the website Senses of Cinema as part of his Great Director series, the writer uh, Hal Young explains, like many from his generation, he was too young to fully grasp the complexities of war, yet old enough to be able to remember its immense consequences. This context would go on to greatly inform much of his work, with his films often exploring innocence and growth amidst an approaching destructive force of some sort, one that is usually acknowledged but only ever vaguely understood by its characters. So Obayashi, he had this sort of natural inclination towards filmmaking when he was a kid. He created his own crudely animated handmade films at the age of six. Uh, is when That's when he made his first quote unquote film. But, you know, that he, he obviously had a desire to do it. I think it was a Popeye cartoon <laughs> that he made. Really? I think Yeah, I think he made his own <laughs> Popeye cartoon using like cutouts from comic books and stuff. Oh, wow. So his father, who uh, was a doctor who, due to his own experiences working on the front lines during the war, was actually staunchly anti-war because he had just seen the atrocities of war, uh, something that's going to greatly influence his son going forward as well. But his father recognized his son's talents and his inclination towards filmmaking, and he would go on to later gift him an uh, 8mm film camera so that Obayashi could go ahead and start making actual films instead of this kind of crudely animated thing that he was doing before. You see, parents, it's okay to be supportive. (laughs) That sounds incredibly personal. (laughs) 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 Todd's got some stuff to work through. Sorry. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. (laughs) In 1958, while in college, Obayashi made his first short film, which is called The Girl in the Picture. The Girl in the Picture is a pretty straightforward melodrama. It's about a half an hour long. Uh, But Obayashi got more adventurous with his filmmaking after dropping out of college when he directed several other short films, including one called Dandanko, one called Mokuyubi, a.k.a. Thursday, and Katami, otherwise known as Remembrance. Those were all released between 1960 and 1962. Uh, it was during this time that he also directed a travelogue of the Japanese countryside called Nakasendo. Uh, Nakasendo is a 
an area in Japan or a town in Japan. The 16-minute short film's lack of narrative, because it was just a travelogue, uh, it really gave Obayashi free reign to experiment with his editing techniques, foreshadowing his more radical work to come. Then in 1963, he would make the jump from 8mm to 16mm filmmaking with a film called Tabeta Hito, a.k.a. An Eater, uh, which is this surreal short about cannibalism. I watched this. It's on YouTube. Uh, I will put links to any of these that, that are available uh, probably on our social media platforms or in the show notes and things like that. Maybe we'll just upload them to our own YouTube channel because uh, they're out there. Uh, the, you know, the, the quality that I found them on YouTube is not the greatest, but they're, you know, if you want to see some of his short films, uh, quite a few of them are out there if you know where to look. So uh, An Eater is this kind of surreal short. It's set in like a restaurant. It's about cannibalism. It's kind of grotesque, and especially for the time period that it was made in the early 1960s. Uh, but this was the first of his films to really get Obayashi recognized on a bigger scale, earning him the jury award at the Belgium International Film Festival that year. But he would outdo himself three years later with 1966's Emotion, which is this bizarre short. It's about 40 minutes long, I think, about a girl who arrives at a, in a big city from a fishing village. Uh, and one writer that I, I, I was reading described this as a caffeinated take on avant-garde cinema. It's seemingly at random. The film jumps between different media, including photographs. Stop motion animation, painting, uh, alternates between color and black and white. It alternates between slow motion and sped up motion. It's really all over the place. Very, very wild. And coming from the guy who made House, it's not surprising if you see it after you see House. Yeah, um, he talks, uh, Obayashi talks a little bit about the Japanese film industry in some interviews that basically in the 60s saying that they had kind of stagnated. Although that's my words, that's not. I don't think the exact way he described it, but basically that they weren't going out of their way to do anything special, anything experimental, anything shocking. And it was kind of all the same old, same old stuff uh, as far as filmmaking went. So I think he says like the early 1950s, that was kind of the peak. And then it all kind of was on a steady decline after that. So most of the artistic kids, if you wanted to do something fun, you get into making these short films. And so that's when he started doing those. And it was to let you do as much as you could in like a short amount of time. So you get to blow all your budget in like two minutes, basically, he said. But then also this helped you get on these film festivals and stuff too, because you don't take up as much time and you can show show off your stuff and get noticed. And anyway, turns out he was really good at it. Yeah, I mean, there there were there were these like art centers where artists would show these like short films. They would essentially have like little mini film festivals uh, even though they weren't movie theaters, they were they were treated more like art shows, kind of. Uh, yeah, he was part of this avant-garde uh, kind of filmmaking, I guess you'd call it collective of sorts, of like-minded artists. And another well-known member of that same collective was Yoko Ono. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, she was it, making stuff around the same time. I, I saw in uh, one maybe a little behind-the-scenes interview or something like that. I actually watched more than just the movie this this week. Uh, <laughs> I did some homework. I did a little bit of homework, yeah. Uh, but I saw that it was interesting to me that he described the decline or the stagnation, however, you know, however you want to classify it, of Japanese cinema was largely due to a big boom in television. Yeah, which which was interesting to me because we've covered a lot of people. I think of Sam Raimi just because this movie is bonkers, like you know some of Sam Raimi's Spookablast stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, not on the same level. It's anyway, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but you know when you 
hear about somebody like Sam Raimi, who was very much influenced by older films that he was seeing on television. Mm -hmm. And then to see like television actually took away from Japanese cinema over there. I I thought that was really interesting. Well, I mean, television did, it it hurt the American film industry as well. There's a reason that uh, at a certain time in like the fifties and sixties, you saw a transition from films that were shot in one thirty-three, the the Academy ratio or one thirty-three to one ratio, which is uh, roughly the size of a television screen, mm-hmm. to going to widescreen because they wanted you to be able to see something bigger, uh, of bigger scope than what you could see at home, a right. way to get people out of their house and away from the TV and back into movie theater. So they introduced CinemaScope. Mm-hmm. So like, and and there have been multiple movements like that, even in American cinema over the years. 3D movies in the 1950s were the same thing, you know, a a gimmick to get people out of the out of the house and uh, see movies again. Interesting. So emotion became a big underground success and it helped to establish Obayashi as one of the leading members of Japan's avant-garde film movement. And then he did something kind of unexpected, at least to his colleagues. Uh, He sold out. (laughs) So so employees (laughs) at uh, a company called Dentsu which is one of Japan's largest advertising companies, they saw a screening of Emotion at a film festival, and they recruited Obayashi to direct commercials for them. So Dentsu, had, they had long been seeking out avant-garde filmmakers in Japan uh, because, you know, these guys are making essentially one or two-minute little short films, you know, the length of a commercial. So they figure these are the guys that w- we should recruit for our commercials. But most of Obayashi's contemporaries turned them down because they saw commercials as being ideological uh, ideologically opposite to the kind of more personal films that they wanted to make. Mm-hmm. So most of them turned them down. But Obayashi, he was not able to really resist the attraction of getting bigger budgets uh, because film budgets were pretty tight for him at the time and, and more professional equipment, even if it was in the service of, you know, like selling toothpaste and stuff. Right. I mean, it's I think that's important to kind of instill that in young filmmakers, and young artists, really, of like being able to say yes to the jobs that will get you to the projects that you want to do. Yeah. And, you know, letting, letting that, letting that fund those, uh, those more personal projects. So like Justin was saying, the, uh, you know, short films are commercials. Commercials are short films basically. And, uh, but yeah, everybody else saw it as selling out, but he, he kind of saw it like when he talks about it, that he could still make art that it wouldn't stop him from making art and he would have all this stuff. Like you mentioned the budget and the equipment and stuff like that. So he would just find another medium to make his art. Although if you listen to him, he's also just like really weird and super stoked about the idea of, I don't know. He was talking about (laughs) now I could shoot the big, beautiful blue sky. And I just thought that would be inspiring. It may not mean anything, but I could shoot the sky. (laughs) I guess there was that. So this gamble did ended up paying off, though, both for uh, Dentsu and for Obayashi. His commercials were immensely popular in Japan. And as a filmmaker, working in commercials al- allowed him, it kind of helped him to perfect both his signature style and his efficiency because he was shooting sometimes like a commercial a day. So he would spend about the next decade working almost exclusively in commercials, producing more than 2,000 of them during this time period. Uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. And you can find some of these on YouTube as well. And he worked with big Hollywood stars on some of these. Uh, it was not uncommon, especially at the time for Hollywood stars to, you know, they don't, they didn't want to water down their image necessarily in America by doing commercials, but they'll go to Japan and make commercials. 
uh, because it's an extra payday. This is what, like, if you've seen Lost in Translation with Bill Murray shooting the the whiskey yep. ad, it's the, the same thing, you know. So, like, he he worked with, you know, like, Charlton Heston. He did a whole series of commercials for a cologne called Mandem uh, that starred Charles Bronson. And they're super weird and super <laughs> fun. There's a few of those out there on YouTube. and uh, But, you know, so he's working with, like, big Hollywood names as well at the time. But within just a few years... He would be making his debut feature film and doing so working for Japan's biggest movie studio. So Toho Studios, we've talked about them on the podcast here in the past. Uh, That began, uh, well, Toho Studios, if you know that name, you probably know it because of its most famous creation, Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Uh, Toho has done hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of movies, but they'll always be associated with Godzilla, uh, which began its life on film in 1954. And as we know, was a major success for the studio. But by the mid-1970s, as as we've kind of already hinted at, the Japanese film industry was in a really weird place. Okay, so Toho, you see, they had witnessed the success of Jaws in America in Mm -hmm. 1974. And they had seen how successful it had been with Japanese audiences when it was released there a year later. And what was happening is that Hollywood imports were starting to edge out homegrown Japanese films. By 1975, non-Japanese films accounted for more than 55% of the yearly box office. So more than half of the money coming into the box office was coming in from movies, mostly from Hollywood, but from outside of Japan. And Toho wanted to produce something that could be a comparable hit in Japan. Uh, They wanted a locally produced summer movie filled with enough thrills to knock the Hollywood imports out of those top spots at the box office. So the Japanese film industry was tired of all the edging? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't know what that i don't know what you're saying there todd okay <laughs> and hold for edit <laughs> well, todd, todd that's a that's a young person's game okay yeah. all right fair <laughs> enough <clears throat> i think that term is the new bleak album has a song called edging in it does it wow yeah okay i was just trying to figure out what the context was and where that fit into the context of what we were talking about oh yeah so you get what edging is i don't know i know what i know what edging is yeah i'm not an, oh okay God, i'm not that fucking old come on guys <laughs> i just yeah i also don't know why todd said i was just trying to figure but, out how how the joke fit into the context of what we were talking about uh you were talking about um start uh the hollywood imports were edging out the japanese uh japanese films okay uh, uh that's a bit of a and now that i've explained it it's really funny <laughs> Well, we have a blooper for the end of the credits, at least. There it is. (laughs) You're welcome, Internet. (laughs) So as we said before, the popularity of uh, television had nearly killed the entire Japanese film industry. So in an act, kind of in an act of desperation, really, major Japanese studios with the studio uh, Nikatsu kind of leading the way began producing what they called pink films. Uh, which is a genre of softcore adults-only exploitation movies. They were they were uh, filled with sex and violence. Essentially, they were softcore movies that also had a lot of violence, and they were you know a, they became a huge genre. Uh, if you want to hear actually a little bit more about those, we talked about them a little bit way back on our Six Degrees of uh, Kill Bill series when we covered Lady Snowblood, which was produced by Nikatsu. So you get a little bit more of the history there, but. These films proved to be very popular with audiences, uh, maybe more so than the studios had had bargained for. And soon the industry was practically taken over by them, leaving little room for summer blockbusters, uh, at least summer blockbusters produced at home in Japan. So when Toho approached Obayashi about helping them concoct a script, 
They were hoping for a surefire crossover hit, telling the director that they were tired of losing money on, quote, comprehensible films and asked him to produce a script that was, uh, in their words, completely incomprehensible. Nailed it. (laughs) Hey, he understood the assignment. He definitely understood (laughs) the assignment. Yeah. So to find inspiration for his script, Obayashi discussed story ideas with his 11-year-old daughter, uh, Shigumi. Later saying that he consulted with her because adults only think about things that they understand. Everything stays on that boring human level, but that children can come up with things that can't be explained. There's two options when you, you're looking for this kind of thing. You could either go to the little girl or you could go to your drunk Uncle Charlie. <laughs> and he chose the former, but I was really hoping for a sequel co-written huh. by the uncle. Um, <laughs> uncle he said Charlie. He basically went, yeah, good old Charlie. You know he would have come up with something grand. <laughs> he said he basically went up to her and he was like, hey, what if dad was asked to make an entertaining Japanese film? What would it be like? And he said she looked right at him and said, don't bother. Japanese films aren't entertaining. (laughs) She said, I think she said Japanese movies are boring. (laughs) And he said, listen here, you little shit. (laughs) uh, He said he was like, okay, but like Jaws, I guess he let her watch Jaws. I don't know. But he said, what do you think would make something exciting like that movie? Her wheels started spinning, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And several of uh, Shigumi's ideas were used in the films. Uh, including there's this image of uh, a mirror's reflection attacking the viewer. That was something that she kind of thought of like, oh, you know, she was standing in front of the mirror one day and thought, what if my reflection like jumps out at me? Uh, which is something that really only a kid would think of. Mm. Uh, or the, the a watermelon being pulled from a well only to appear as a human head. That was one of her ideas. Oof. And then she also incorporated some of her own irrational childhood fears, including you know, the idea of getting her fingers cut off by a piano, because I think she was taking piano lessons at the time, which, of course, is played out in one of, uh, in my opinion, one of the film's more memorable scenes. Literally, he says that, like, after this, she just started spouting off things randomly. Like, they're there one night. She's brushing her hair and looks at him and says, what if my reflection came alive and attacked me? Yeah, right. And, and he's just, like, <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Later, she's talking about staying out at, I think it was, like, their grandma's or something in the country, and they'd sleep on futons. And you had to hang them up when you're done so shit doesn't get on them. And they'd be really heavy and she'd lose her balance a lot of the time trying to carry them and hang them up. She'd imagine them crushing her. And also out at that house, they didn't have a fridge. So the only way to chill the watermelon was to put it in the well. And she was telling her dad about how uh, one time grandma was pulling up the watermelon and it looked like a head. And I thought it was going (laughs) to bite me. (laughs) And, uh, And she talked about her piano teacher would like slap her hands and make her have the right keys on the right fingers on the right keys. And, One time her finger got pitched in between the keys and she was like, it's like the piano attacked me. Anyway, at this point, I'd be like, kid, I'm going to take you to talk to somebody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Obiashi, no, he's like, brilliant. Hey, (laughs) but you know, it works. And and the thing is, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this in the opening credits, but Shigumi has a story credit on this. Oh, so he actually, yeah, she actually is the, 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 not the screenwriting credit, but the story by credit is to Obayashi and his daughter. Uh, so he she gets a full screen credit on there because That's of this. awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So after he gathered all of these ideas, Obayashi took them to a screenwriter named Chiho Kasura and had him incorporate these into the narrative. I, I tried to find out more about Kasura, but uh, I couldn't find a whole lot of bi- biographical info about him. But looking at his filmography prior to House, 
it seems like most of his screenplays had been for the type of pink films that we were just talking about. You know, his early filmography uh, includes titles with, I assume these are awkwardly translated English titles, like uh, one called Overly Right Breast Married Women. I don't know. And that's like Overly Right Breast colon Married Women. I don't know if that was part of a, a larger Overly Right Breast cinematic universe. Uh, and there was like Overly, <laughs> overly Right Breast. Uh, you know what? What you have to do? Women. What you have to do is you have to you have to thump it, and <laughs> if, it, if it makes a if it makes a particular noise, you know that's, that it's right. That, that's yeah. how you know it's ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, other ones were uh, Legend of the Sex Thief and Edo, uh, Sex Highway, Lusty Widow. There's also one called Lusty Wife, which I assume is also part of the same universe as Lusty Widow. Mm. I would oh, yeah. I would think that wife came after widow so maybe it's a prequel <laughs> well lusty there's there's a well-known uh trilogy where in the third one the lusty wife teams with married women to take on the lusty widow <laughs> it's like the avengers of of softcore <laughs> right. japanese movies yeah yeah they end up uh, just scissoring <laughs> <laughs> there it is that's all the time we have on cinema shock <laughs> uh that some of the other ones that he wrote got right to the point with their titles, like one that's just called Sexual Assault in a Hotel. Didn't look up the premise of that one, but I think I can gather what it's about. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> that one was <laughs> never never judge a pink film by its cover. You always want to get right I in. I say there. know your audience. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. We've got a pretty, pretty niche demographic here we're working with. Uh, How do we but... let them know it's for them? <laughs> That last one, Sexual Assault in a Hotel, was actually released the same year as House. Uh, so this wasn't something that like he was doing early in his career, then transitioned. Like, he continued to do this, and he actually continued to work primarily in this genre for most of his career. Although he did re-team with Obayashi for several other films throughout the years. They were like writing partners, so several other Obayashi movies after House were co-written uh, by Katsura there. But, uh, but even in between, he was still making softcore porn, basically. <laughs> Payday's got to be pretty decent. I mean, yeah, they were popular yeah. films. Yeah, you got to get that bag. He was he was doing it through peak film. Obiashi's doing commercials. You yeah, know? that's that's um, how you do it. Yep, and, bills to uh, pay. The main thing with them is they were friends. Like apparently they were pretty tight. And like yeah. you said, writing partners. Uh, they were working on a movie well before this. Like they wanted to work on called uh Hanagatari or Tommy yeah. Hanagatami. Hanagatami. We'll more about that, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, we'll talk about, uh, more about that later. But yeah, they were working on that before House, and that was supposed to be like Obayashi's big masterpiece. You know, like making because you know we talked about how the peak of Japanese cinema was kind of considered the early 50s, 1950s, like when Ozu and um, Kurosawa were, you know, at the height of their powers. And yeah. that was kind of who he I, I obviously idolized. Every Japanese filmmaker idolizes Akira Kurosawa. But the movie that you're referencing, Gary, was kind of like his, it was going to be his like war epic kind of thing like that. But uh... obviously he didn't have the pull to get something like that made quite yet. So once the script for House was completed... It was presented to Toho, who greenlit it immediately. They read it and they're like, "This is money. Like, this is it. This, people are gonna. This is this is the Japanese Jaws. If I ever read a script that was the Japanese Jaws, it's this one." Uh, <laughs> uh, but then they ran into a little roadblock. None of Toho's directors wanted to touch it, fearing that it would end their careers. They're like, "This is wacky, and this there's no fucking way I'm putting my name on this." Uh, and Obayashi offered to direct it himself, but Toho turned him down because he wasn't on their staff. Because you see. Typically, if you were a director for Toho, and, and this is the case with most Japanese studios of the time, you actually had to wait, work your way up the ladder 
often spending years working as an assistant director for, you know, working for a more well-established director before you were given the chance to helm a film of your own. I don't even think he expected it to really work because he talks about even the name House, like calling it a House was taboo during the time because Japanese films were not named with foreign titles. Uh, So he says he thinks he was the first to ever do that. Oh, wow. Interesting. uh, But he wasn't expecting it would really get made either way. But he said when he took it in that it was greenlit within three hours. But then he was just like, cool, so we're underway. And they were like, not quite. Uh, Yeah, yeah, they got (laughs) to find somebody that actually will do this movie now. Right, yeah. (laughs) It would actually be two years from the time of the script's completion to when filming actually began. Uh, So, But Obayashi kept busy during that time. Uh, He continued to work on commercials, and he started reaching out to other creatives that he knew to try to think of alternate ways to adapt House, whether it be as like a novel or a manga. He was hustling the whole time. Yeah. Like he made he made up business cards with the the image you'll see on like a not on the Criterion cover, but on another like I think there's a Region B DVD that has it with the the house, with the house and read like, and the tugs coming and the out, the tongue the coming out. Yeah, <laughs> he made like business cards with that that were like really colorful. And I, I guess this is important to note. We'll we'll talk more about this, but he never really looked at it like horror horror like we think of horror he did not grow up with horror and he talks a little bit about that that was not really a thing for them back then he looked at it more as fantasy and that sort of thing but this colorful image and everything was going against kind of what the movie was supposed to be he made those business cards he would hand them out and be like coming soon from toho uh then like you said the novel the manga he was he was building word of mouth like he was yeah. intentionally doing this like building a brand almost yeah. for this for the script that he wanted to get made. Uh, he also produced a radio dramatization of House, and that was a huge hit. Based on that radio drama, and I wish I could listen to it, but it's kind of hard to listen to a radio drama when you don't um, speak Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, makes it makes it a little do- you kind of lose a little something. Can't there. hear the subtitles. <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but based on that radio drama's success, Toho made an exception to their usual rules, and they they uh, greenlit the film with Obayashi hired to direct and produce it, which was an unprecedented move in the Japanese studio system of the 70s. And I think that's somewhat uh, indicative of just how desperate Japan's film industry was at the time. Yeah, and, and this guy, back to uh, Obayashi, He's a freak, man. He, I think he said during this whole time period of waiting, in between all of this, he made like 200 commercials. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but he, then while he's doing that, he's producing all of this stuff. There was a, besides the radio drama, there was like a a, a fashion show based around it uh, that they <laughs> they did. I think with some of the girls that are actually in the movie based Well, they were models, the yeah. So. Yeah, and they made like posters and cards with the girls on them there's like all kinds of different stuff you watch this documentary on the criteria there's like random different styles there's like swimsuit photos of the girls and like yeah. all the stuff and it just says house <laughs> you know and it's like and it's like he's he's pushing all this stuff and building the anticipation and yeah. the pressure of these guys to make this movie it almost feels like i mean in a sense like it's like that 89 batman push <laughs> like, right they've got all this <laughs> yeah merch. All but prior to the movie it. actually being made. Yeah, <laughs> but prior thing. to it actually existing. Yeah. yeah. But but He's, people were like asking, they said, like, where is this house movie? What is this house yeah. movie? I need He's to creating brand it. awareness. Like that's what he's doing here for, for this movie that he wants to be 
to have made, which is pretty genius. And it keeps him paid, I guess, during that two years. That I never uh, saw a connection, but I wonder if that has anything to do with his time in the commercial industry too. Like if he ever maybe like just some uh, of the marketing uh, got yeah. him or something. stuff that he yeah. just learned. Yeah. Uh, during that two year interim, he also worked with a pop group named uh, Godaigo to create the film soundtrack, which was released long before the film was even completed. So they, so not only were they doing all this other stuff, fashion, fashion shows, mangas, radio dramas, but they actually created a soundtrack for a film that did not exist yet, uh, <laughs> which is insane when you think about it, but it obviously it worked in this case. And, and Japanese culture, Japanese pop culture is highly different from American. So, I don't know how unusual all of this stuff that he's doing at the time was. You know, I don't know if the other people were doing similar things or if this was wholly unique to him. I'm really not sure. But uh, yeah, so he, he created a soundtrack to the film. He had originally hired a composer named Asei Kobayashi to score the film because they'd worked together on many of his uh, his TV commercials. But Kobayashi felt that the script needed younger musicians, so he suggested Godaigo. And uh, so Kobayashi wrote the score, but had the members of Godaigo actually arrange the tunes. Uh, and as a side note, Kobayashi does actually appear in the film as the watermelon farmer, the guy oh, with the, nice. the, the big round head. <laughs> <laughs> this this guy was his buddy uh, from the commercials, so he knew him pretty well, and he wanted. And they had worked on making a movie. He was actually for that same movie that we talked about before, uh, Hanagatami. I think he was originally gonna be the guy who would score that movie for him yeah. but when he came in and heard like the or saw the premise of the whole movie he was kind of like he was hoping to like write a more traditional score for a film and apparently was not interested in doing one for this because i think uh obiashi was looking for some wacky stuff you don't and say. so yeah so <laughs> supposedly according to obiashi in the, in the interview on criterion like this guy had almost suggested go diago uh to be it was like, you need youth. You need somebody else to do this. I'll just act in your movie or something. And so that's how that came about. But then he also had the idea for like the piano part and that yeah. kind of thing. And he was just like, well, you could at least like write some of the more traditional pieces that are going to be in this, you know, like some of that. Because uh, he said he always pictured like fantasy and stuff with like having these like a really solid, I don't know, musical piece that mm -hmm. would get stuck in your head or something. And, and mm. so he got him to do that. Yeah, so all the little piano pieces that you hear in the movie are just, that's just him doing those. I also want to say just really quickly, too, the idea of a soundtrack for a movie that doesn't exist. Slasher Film Festival Strategy, who does the intro music you hear for this podcast, that's like that brother's whole game. Yeah. It's like he just writes soundtracks for movies that don't exist, and you should yeah. check him out. Slasher Film Festival Strategy. Yeah, if you go mm. into our show notes uh, on every episode, there's a link to their, um, I think it's Bandcamp or, or SoundCloud. It's what, what whichever one they're on, but yeah, where you can buy their music, and it's all really good. If you like the, like the style of our intro, then go check that out, because it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic stuff. So most of House's cast is composed of actors who were not very well known to Japanese audiences, but who had primarily only worked with Obayashi on his commercials and ind independent films. So during that two-year time period when uh, he was kind of waiting to start filming House, waiting for someone to allow him to film House, uh, as we said, he continued working in commercials and he started casting the seven girls 
from models that he'd worked with during that time. Uh, as Gary mentioned, they were part of that that fashion show. But uh, so he had worked with these girls before. And that's kind of like where he pulled. So they, they weren't like movie stars. None of these girls really were. Of the main cast, the most experienced were Kamiko Ikagama and Yoko Minamita. Minamita was already a uh, a 25-year veteran of the industry. She had worked with Obayashi on commercials for a uh, Japanese soft drink called Kalpis, uh, which I looked up and it's very weird. It looks like milk. But it's not, I, don't, I don't I don't know what it is. It's not like it's not a carbonated soft drink. What was it called know. again? Cal, not Calpis. I knew <laughs> I was, I was good to say it seems C-A- like it's on bread. This yeah. seems fine. C-A-L-P-I-S. When I wrote it down, I was like, the way that this is going to sound when an American pronounces it is that it's going to sound like cow piss. Uh, yeah. But it's cow piss. It looks like milk. Calpis, C A L P I S. But she, so she was only in her. She was like in her early forties when she was cast in the role of. Uh, she plays Auntie, the which is an elderly character, you know. So she was reluctant to take the role at first uh, because at the time she was primarily working in television and theater, and she was kind of worried that being cast as an old woman would have a negative impact on the types of roles that she would be offered down the line. But she did eventually accept the part. This might sound like like a random actress quirk thing like you're like okay get over it but it's really not like i was looking at this and like uh, i mean in japan at the time once you played a certain age you could not play younger than that. you were stuck yeah yeah you were stuck like they just wouldn't allow it it wasn't just what you were that's what you were known for all of a sudden yeah and so like once she had made the decision to go old she she was not going to be able to like uh, that was the risk she was taking is that she was not going to get cast as somebody her old age or anything anymore right Thought that was wild, but yeah, it's uh, really so it, was, it was apparently a yeah a big deal for her to accept that, huh? And then uh, Ikagami, who plays Gorgeous in the film, she came from a long lineage of famous Kabuki actors, and uh, she began acting herself in 1975. Although most of her appearances prior to House were on various television series, if you look up her filmography, that's mostly what she was doing. Then for the other six girls, you've got Miki Jinbo as Kung Fu, I Matsubara as Prof. Kumiko Oba as Fantasy, Miko Sato as Mac, Maseo Miyako as Sweet, and Ariko Tanaka as Melody. And then you've got Mr. Togo, who is the girl's teacher. You know, he's the, uh, the, the a couple of them have a crush on. He drives yeah. around a little, little dune buggy. He's he- played by a popular Japanese singer named Kiyo, uh, Kiyohiko Ozaki, who he really got the part because he was friends with Obayashi. The two had bonded over their shared love of horseback riding. Uh, I have been listening to Ozaki's music all week long, and it is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It is really good. He is a great singer, and I don't have a clue what he's saying in any of them, but I love it. It's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was like, they definitely talked about him having this like country Western background, which I just thought was wild here. Well, the the stuff that I've been listening to his like greatest hits album, which is really long. It's got like 30 songs on it, but uh, I wouldn't call it country Western. It it almost reminds me more of like, like the sixties, seventies, very operatic. I think of Lee Hazelwood when I listen to it, honestly, is that's the, the American. And I love Lee Hazelwood, which is a super cool thing for me to say is that I love Lee Hazelwood, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, that's the best thing I can compare it to. I don't know. I don't know what edging is. And I love Lee Hazelwood. But Ozaki was known like uh, for for being like a very handsome man, and he was known for these signature big 
sideburns that he, you see him in the movie, but that was kind of his signature look was having these big old, big old sideburns. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was apparently a very popular singer at the time. I don't think I saw one YouTube anything about this movie that didn't include a scene of brother falling down the stairs and getting his butt stuck in a bucket. Yeah. <laughs> it is a uh, an iconic moment in the movie. Like, <laughs> mi- like mid first viewing, Cat came back into the room. I was, I rewound it. I was like, "You have to see this." Yeah, you missed, you missed a really good part. <laughs> so, a lot of the other small roles in the film were filled uh, with other members of the crew and their friends and family. You know, like we had the composer playing the watermelon guy, but uh, Shigumi Obayashi, uh, Nobuhiko's daughter, she plays the little girl at the shoemaker shop, for example. Uh, and the film's production designer, uh, Katsu Satsuya, plays the shoemaker himself. Todd, do we even bother with Star Trek? I mean, if you found somebody in this movie that is somehow connected to Star Trek, then you're getting a raise. <laughs> damn it <laughs> right, we don't get paid anything right now so it's not going to be so right. anything's going to be a, a... <laughs> right right so a 100 raise for you todd yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey. so uh yeah unfortunately uh there's nobody in star trek but I'm, I, don't, I'm... <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to be surprised by that no <laughs> no so house was filmed over the course of about two months on one of toho's largest sets uh and when they got to filming you know obayashi he found that he was a little disappointed in the acting skills of his seven main girls when he tried to direct them traditionally uh, by giving them, you know, verbal direction. So he started playing the film's soundtrack, which, remember, was already completed before the film was shot. And he said that playing the music on set completely changed the way the girls acted, and they kind of got into the spirit of the music. He talks about them a little bit changing him almost, too, you know, like about the way you think of directing, like just that they're not traditional actors. So he said it was like very, uh, it's like a play, you know, like yeah. it, it's it's how it was read. But the, the music, they would kind of, you know, just depending on the mood of the music, you would talk about playing like a song and then they'd be like happy and joking around. But then you switch it to a minor key and then he would notice they get kind of more in a lull and more somber. Like, yeah. Yeah. And weird. And so they would like have the live, like, or not live music, but music playing the whole time, like on set. And I thought that was really, really cool. Uh, it was also interesting that it was apparently a pretty big scandal. They were on a soundstage and on Toho's largest soundstage, no less, because he is not a salaried Toho employee. And apparently mm. that is a big fat no-no. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and so that was a that was a whole thing. Yeah, but I mean, there's pictures and all kinds of stuff you can find of him just like playing around with the girls. And I don't mean it like a creepy, weird way. Like, I mean, he was just like going around, like skipping around with them and having a good time. And it, yeah. like looking like, I don't know, his daughter's there. He's like having like fun with a bunch fun. of daughters or something. Yeah. And so it was uh, it was it was cool. It looks like they had like a blast on the set. And the soundstage, I mean, the, the sets are pretty incredible, honestly. Like, uh, yeah. everything has this real, like, artificiality to it, even the outdoor scenes. I love the train ride scene, which look, just looks like a cartoon almost. It yeah. feels like something that you would see in, a honestly, a Wes Anderson movie now. <laughs> like, where it's like, yeah. it is very purposely artificial looking, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's, I, it's just so unique to me. Talking about using the music on set, it actually makes me think of Robert Rodriguez, who brings his guitar and between yeah. shots just kind of walks around putting out the vibe. And like, I, I got to imagine that's because those sets I imagine can be very stressful, especially if it's, you know, whatever kind of pressures. I mean, you think about these seven girls who are 
really not actors. Right. <laughs> and they get this job is I got to imagine it's stressful, you know, having a director who kind of plays with you and plays music on set. And I got to imagine that actually creates a pretty awesome working environment. Well, I, a lot of a lot of Italian movies, uh, especially of the time of this time, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, would play music on set because remember, Italian movies were largely they they were not being re- they were not recording dialogue on set. They were all dubbed later on, mm. uh, so they could so they would directors like Dario Argento would play. He would get Goblin to score the movie before the movie was shot, just just like they did here. And they would play the music on set to kind of set the mood uh, for the actors, you know? So it's, it's an interesting way. I mean, obviously there are other technical issues you have to deal with, like having to go back and re-record all the dialogue and all that, which, which, you know, can create some difficulties in the actor's performances, I think, because you're not as in the moment, but Mm. uh, you know, when it works, it works and it works in a lot of those Argento movies as well, I think. So like a lot of, uh, Japanese films around this time. House also features a handful of seemingly random nude scenes. <laughs> like it's just like all of a sudden you're watching this kind of fairy tale little movie, and all of a sudden this girl's clothes all completely disappear when she goes into like the water. <laughs> like and you're like, wait, where did this come from? What movie am I watching now? But you know, again, he knew his audience. Again, pink films were the big money makers of the day. And Kamiko Ikigami, uh, who plays Gorgeous, she was nervous about her nude scene. So Yoko Minamita, uh, who had never done a nude scene before, uh, she she decided that she would also take off all of her clothes uh, kind of on set to make the younger actress feel more comfortable with it. She's like, look, I can do it. I've never done this before, so you can do it. I guess, I guess that was the thinking. But after he saw Minamita nude, Obayashi, I guess he was like, hey, she looks pretty good. And he decided to include a topless scene of her in the movie as well, which was not in the original script at all. This is my kind of filmmaker. Uh, no. <laughs> first things first, because I saw this admitting nap needing people. These girls are not underage. They no. are all uh, they are all of age. Yes, uh, they are there. <laughs> Now, it does not help my argument that this dude's hanging out with his daughters, I guess, like when, <laughs> when he's like making these nude scenes. But also the peak film guy was the writer. So maybe they started there. Now, he 100 percent does say that, like, he was there when uh, Minamita is telling her about I won't even try to explain her thought process for it. But it was like getting into the spirit of the film and shedding everything and just embracing it or something. She's like like this. And she takes off her clothes and. So then the other girl takes off her clothes and then he said he was looking at her and he 100% says he was he was like I was looking I was like you have really beautiful breasts we must show those <laughs> so you know that's how that happened but I mean for what it's worth apparently they were best friends all up the way up till her death so wow. and Obayashi himself actually oversaw the film special effects and uh he did purposely make them look unrealistic like that was an, an artistic choice it, it wasn't a, a limitation of the the technology of the time by any means like he wanted them to look somewhat unrealistic as if a child had created them and i think that does add to the sort of dark fairy tale nature of the final product yeah this is the thing i think some people are confused by that the guy's getting exactly what he sought out to do like he is making his he's putting his daughter's ideas on film is right is what he's trying to 
go for here. And so it's not necessarily like he's not making a slasher movie, you know, he's he's trying to have some fun with it. And there was they talk about there was a real spirit of adventure with the whole movie. Like it was just like an experimentation and trying different things. And he would talk about stuff like shattering the mirror or whatever and like trying to figure out how to make that all work and the flames and stuff like it. Uh, just different special effects you see in there that they at the time they didn't you know he was saying we don't we didn't have like a hd monitor sitting there or something that we could work with we were kind of guessing at like how this is going to go we don't know for sure how some of it's going to look until we're done but that was kind of the fun part of it it's like yeah seeing what happened and And i think uh, there were some even better yeah and i think there were some here and there where he was disappointed in the final final effect but uh, I love it. I think all the all the animation looking like looking like hand drawn animation. I, I think adds a lot to the film. I just, I think like I said before. I think all of the um, kind of artificial backgrounds and things like that, like the skyscape uh, in the background when they're waiting on the on the train. Like I love all those little touches. I think it really adds to the film and and it does make it feel like a fairy tale because it does separate it from our reality. You like you're everything you're witnessing in this film exists in a completely different reality than than the one that we live in. He almost seems like he wants you to notice the special effects more. Yeah. So like yeah. You, you you appreciate what's happening or mm-hmm. that you are aware of this instead of like hiding it. How we talk about sometimes is he's like making it very obvious and to he, him that's okay. Like yeah, he almost wants you to be like as you're watching the movie to be very aware that you are watching a movie and not witnessing reality. You know, like he wants yeah. he, he the artifice is a big part of it. Uh I mean and and he does he does weird stuff like that throughout. Like even there's this really interesting moment when Gorgeous is introduced to her new soon to be stepmother. And where, where they're out on the balcony and you've got this like really fake sunset in the background that looks like something out of Gone with the Wind or something, you know? Right. Uh, but he shoots that whole scene through these pane glass windows that kind of manipulates, the, it, it refracts the image of, of the people behind the window in a weird way that he's like purposely creating some distance between the audience and them. It's it's a very strange choice, but it's also, there's something really inspired about it because I watch that and I'm go I'm going why is he doing this like why is he shooting them through that and it kind of makes you it kind of like pulls you into the movie trying to figure out what the hell he's trying to say by that you know what I mean yeah and a lot of it I think is just he wants to show I think he he almost seems like he's bored with cinema in ja- Japan at the time yeah, and so he's, yeah. he he's just, just wanted to do something to, different there was a there was one video essay I watched on uh YouTube where the uh I think it was Noah Simon was the guy's name, but he writes this or he, he talks about like uh, comparisons to uh, Jean-Luc Goddard because of the way that he uh, sees the audience. Like there's the couple of moments like that. They're thinking he was influenced by G- Goddard, I guess is how you say that. But um, anyway, but he said the difference between him and like the French at the time were like they were using to they, they had like a big, big movement to show like uh, it's all uh, political. They focus on the political aspects of film and then how it can be used to manipulate people and that sort of thing. But where Obayashi is like trying to show the possibilities with film. Uh, He wants to show you like what could happen if we just opened ourselves up to it. Yeah. Just see all these different dimensions and different realities. That's really cool. So House was released in Japan on July 30th, 1977. 
despite their initial desire to have Obayashi create a film that would help reinvigorate the Japanese film industry, uh, Toho, uh, I guess when they saw the final product, they didn't have high hopes for the film when they released it. Because uh, I guess they were like, man, this is, we told you to make Jaws. And uh, <laughs> this, is not, this is not Jaws. Uh, but they chose instead to release it as a B-movie on a double feature with a movie called Pure Hearts and Mud. But the movie, despite receiving largely negative reviews from Japanese film critics of the time, became a, a commercial success and proved to be especially popular with younger audiences. I, I, I meant to to tell this before, but kind of in the filmmaking process, there was this there was this time with even with the Toho crew. They said like working with them was a little different because they're used to their certain director, so they're going to work with it. Nobody really took him seriously, and uh, so nobody believed that he would make anything special. So even once the film was complete, like he thought there was a cool story he tells about like when they first start, and then he he's trying to make himself have a relationship with these guys, and so he talks to the lighting people, and it's like, hey, he like learns all their names, and it's like, hey, so so how are you today? Like, hey. You want to come over and help us uh, cook this food later? Like, uh, those lights are really bright tonight. Like, you can put them on this. You know, just making, like, stupid jokes and stuff. Mm -hmm. He says that on the first day of shooting, they were walking around and a screw fell out of his sunglasses and he lost it. And so one of his lenses came out. And so he said he finished the rest of the day filming just with one lens in his sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Like, he wore them like that. So after the first day of shooting, they go back to the back and uh they have like you know he says they get drinks and stuff and hang out to celebrate the first day of shooting they're all partying but the crew's not there he's like well i don't want to do this without him but you know we got to start so they start they're hanging out blah blah, blah. And then all of a sudden like a little while later the crew gets there and he's like hey guys i'm sorry it was just late you know we needed to get the party started blah 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 and the lighting guy comes up to him and is like, is this yours? It holds up the little tiny screw. And he's like, yeah, that's mine. And he was just like, and he said the guy, and even he was getting emotional telling the story. He said the guy was like, you know that no director has ever even known my name, let alone address me directly. Huh. He's like, we all decided that we were going to stay out there and find this screw, even if it took the rest of the night. And wow. So, and they found that for him. And he said, That's so he great. ended up making really great friends. And yeah. So he treated him well. <laughs> yeah. Cause he treated him well. And they, they also thought it was fun. There were stories about like, he would be like, what would Kurosawa do? Do it opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, all that to say, he said, even after the movie wrapped and finished, he still had his old script of the movie where everybody came through and wrote notes to him. And he said, this was really cool to me, but you'd think that they would be like, we got through it. We actually did this. The movie actually worked. He's like, but no, most most of these notes are. And he was like reading them, and they're like, "This was cool. Maybe you should work on a memorable movie next time." Or oh, like, ouch, <laughs> savage. <laughs> you know? Well, he said they were trying to be like hopeful, right? Like, truthful. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. They're yeah. like, they're like, hey, this was a good job for a first movie. I hope that you next time do better. Something... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope that we can work together on something real next time. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's funny. Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, but he says that they that one of the PAs on the set too ended up sending a letter out to I think he said it was a director that happened to be working in the US. And I know there were no official screenings, but he almost made it sound like either that guy had been showing it in some places or something, or had heard word from Toho elsewhere. But he said anyway that he wrote to this guy, the PA did, it was like, yeah, we just finished working on the Sobiashi movie. And, you know, it's, he's a great guy. It's not going to be much, but, you know, <laughs> you, you, hopefully he'll get to work with Toho some more or something like that. 
And he said that the PA showed him the letter he got back. It's like, well, I hate to tell you, but unfortunately, House has become a very large success. (laughs) (laughs) Well, House was a success in Japan, despite the fact that Japanese film critics didn't like it. And and as we'll discuss here in a few minutes, uh, it has become very well regarded among critics, uh, you know, almost 50 years later, 45 years later. But... As is always the case, I'm willing to bet that if you were to uh, scour the internet for some reviews, you're going to find some people who maybe just don't quite get it. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of wild when you look at the internet. You think the internet would just be in love with everything and they'd be supportive of all artistic endeavors. But no, it turns out somebody watched House. Now they need a nap. Here's a half star from Martin Stevens. It says, what an absolute steaming turd of a movie this is. It's a bad acid trip performed by village idiots and it was a complete waste of my fucking time. Hasu is a messy and annoying Japanese ghost story. The silly screenplay is irritating and the music score is awful. Hard to understand why some people consider this garbage cult. My vote is one for awful. One for awful. That's an odd rating system. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tim gave it a half star and said, nothing could have prepared me for this. And that's just I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a positive review to me, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's not wrong, but... I think my literal letterbox says, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this, but the only thing I can say for certain is that you owe it to yourself to see this at least once in your lifetime. Agre- yeah, agreed. <laughs> now, now I just need to see it with a big audience, though, you oh, know? Yeah, it would be fun for a, a crowd. As long as that crowd does not uh, include uh, D'Lo here, who says... D'Lo Brown? Yeah, I think it's D'Lo Brown. Cool. He's, I was wondering what he's, like I was wondering what he's been doing these days. <laughs> uh, well, his review title is titled, It's Visual Torture! Man, this is the most annoying film I've ever seen. Everything in this film tortures your nerves. The story, the music, uh, the design, the dialogue. It took me two days to get through this whole thing. Nothing makes sense here. Seven Japanese schoolgirls visit the aunt of one of them in the country. Strange, magical things start happening until it gets clear that the aunt, or the house, tries to feast on them. All this with 70s design, 70s music, and typical Asian overacting. I think that's racist. I don't know. <laughs> this guy, come on, D-Lo. You better recognize. <laughs> this is the first time after more than 4,000 ratings that I give a rating of one star. Wow. Ooh. Imagine taking two days to watch a movie that you don't even like. <laughs> Imagine just wasting two days doing that. Just giving it that extra time. <laughs> That's seven, by the way, the seven Japanese schoolgirls. That was apparently a thing, uh, a tradition yeah. in Japan, and I was not aware of that. But Do, having uh, seven, yeah, it talks about like in Seven Samurai and stuff like that. Like oh, when yeah. you crew up, you get seven for some oh, okay. reason, like football. Yeah, there right. You go. I don't I know. Don't watch. I don't watch a lot of football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Natalie gave it a half star. And said, objectification of women in film. Why uh-huh. the hell is this movie so popular? There are plenty of great weird movies out there that don't use female nudity as shock factor. Are we just so numb to women being exploited and being naked for no added value in men's art that we don't care about this? 100% overrated film. Did she confuse it? Did, did, did this person confuse it with overly right? breasts married women <laughs> i mean there are wondering. there is nudity in this but i would argue that 
there is some value in it personally (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean i don't know what to tell you natalie i like boobies yeah sorry but i (laughs) you know if if they had been i don't know if they weren't the central characters of the film or something i I just you know i just don't think the argument holds up but yeah hey jacob jacob john taylor i hope that's his real name jacob john taylor it feels like a guy who's come to my door trying to tell me about the Church of Mormon. <laughs> uh, um, is uh, says I do not know why people like this movie. Now I'd like to point out that he says I do not know. N O. I do not know why Excellent. people like. This okay, movie. now we know where where his intelligence level is. So let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> this is a horror movie that is not scary. So what is the point? I do not know. The storyline, I feel like this is going to be a poem. Uh, the story, the storyline in this movie is awful. The acting is awful. The ending is awful. There is no reason for people to like this movie. It is poo poo. Seven point three on IMDb is overrating it. I give it one because it is poo poo. The actors have no talent. The writers have no talent. Do not see this poo poo movie. I need more lines, and I am running out of things to say. Crappy movie. Crappy movie. Crappy movie. One of the worst horror movies of all time. It there you go. Uh, no. <laughs> it smells. It smells like poo poo because it is what it is. Do not see it. Stay away from this movie. I heard it was a comedy, but it is not funny. It is just a stinky. <laughs> was that written by a nine-year-old? <laughs> I think so. I love he my ball. Poo-poo. My bouncy said, ball. I love oh my ball, god! Ball, Don't ball, get me started ball, on ball. that. I will, I will lose it. <laughs> he, he said poo poo four times. During that as a descriptor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not, and, and you might imagine he spelled it P O O P O O, but it's P O O H P O O H. He didn't like, even spell poo bear. Poo-poo right. <laughs> <laughs> like a poo bear. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Luke, half star. I don't know what I thought this would be, but this movie is butt. Gene <laughs> uh, uh, gave it one. It's boring the entire goddamn movie. I don't even want to give it one star, but Amazon made me give it at least one star. It's boring the entire goddamn movie. Even the cheesy <laughs> gore and the horror stuff. I truly do not, even if you didn't like this movie, I truly do not see how anyone could find this movie boring. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. Like, th- this movie is, you, you far never, from boring. <laughs> yeah, you never know what's going to happen. How could you be bored by that? <laughs> yeah it's, i don't know ellis has one star join a cult, cult drink the kool-aid uh says i watched the prime streaming version a better option versus buying if you heard you just must check it out the trivia along the left of the streaming player was some of the most interesting part evidently this film was commissioned as the as the first horror flick in japan some studio exec blocked the commission to bank off of the success of u.s horror flicks so after the likes of Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, and The Burst, the Japanese get this first-of-a-kind language cultural barrier, maybe. The producers also did some pioneering spinoff marketing things prior to the release of the film, like creating a comic. Then for some unknown reason, 30 years later, the film was released in the U.S. and becomes a cult hit. I only discovered it while hanging out with those pretentious movie geeks who appreciate stuff like this. Alas, another circle where I won't quite fit in. Oh, about the film. It sucks. I guess some may say in a fun way, if you're into 
mood slash reality altering pastimes. The story, plot, characters, they're all dumb. Some describe the special effects and action as cartoonish. There exists an absurdity of real people being trapped in a cartoon, but we're talking a whack cartoon and annoying people. Oh, and it has subtitles. <laughs> That's just another negative that it has subtitles. Um, yeah. The first Japanese horror movie is where I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> yeah, he, he has some other history we didn't cover. Yeah, um, I don't know what version, what what reality he's living in where Jap- Japan did not produce a horror film until 1977. Uh, Godzilla? I mean, <laughs> if you want if you want to call Godzilla a horror movie, but Onibaba, uh, I watched one the other day. Oh, fuck, it's crazy. It's called um, Jigoku. Have you heard of this one? It's on Criterion. So. It's set like in... It, the, the majority of the movie is set in hell and the way that this director and i don't know the director's name uh, off the top of my head but the way that this director visualizes hell in this movie is unlike anything you've ever seen it is just insane it's wild and that came out in like the early 60s i think like 1962 63 somewhere around there so anyway that's it well and that's one that's one of many examples of an earlier film than this one (laughs) and finally quaker bro he says, uh, unbelievable. Well, Obiashi, I have a huge problem with this movie. It's that you haven't made it for me sooner. Because if you had, then I would know how good you are at making movies that are bad. And when I say bad, I mean Michael Jackson bad. You know how he looked really, really bad at the end of his life? Because frankly, I'm jealous of you and your ability to not give a shit about what you make. This is not fit for human consumption. No, this should be watched by a higher life form with a more complex palette, but also an altruistic drive to save humanity from movies like this. Joking, not you deserve to die so you don't have to endure a life in which you will never exceed what you have achieved here today. In conclusion, half star for the soundtrack. (laughs) <laughs> that was a roller coaster. Woo! <laughs> was that a positive Ooh. or negative review? I can't tell. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a weird one. I like that one, though. I want more reviews from Quaker Bro. Uh, Quaker Bro is very pleased with himself, I think, <laughs> with that review. I keep yeah. picturing the guy from the Quaker Oats box, but with, <laughs> right. like, with a like a popped collar. A yeah. popped collar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I say bad, I mean bad like Michael Jackson bad. But like how he looked bad when he was dying. Okay, so one thing that is clear from, from those reviews, I think, is that Either you are on board with this movie's deranged, delirious vibe, or you're not. You know, yeah. uh, personally, I, I like that one guy who said it was boring. Like, I, I just don't understand that. I can't imagine watching a movie like this and being bored by it. I can't Im- imagine watching a movie like this and not being like totally enamored by it because yeah. it is just one thing after another that. You you have you nobody could ever guess what's going to happen next in this movie. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right, like nobody. Uh, Todd, you you told me this. I this was your first time watching this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, you'd seen this before, correct? I knew what to expect. I mean, I but you had not actually seen it before. You had never I don't know that down. I've ever sat down to okay. pay attention to watch it. Okay, all right. So this is a first time watch for both of you guys. 
I uh, I feel like you showed it to me one time, Justin. To be honest, I feel with like you. I probably <laughs> would have because I like showing this movie to people. <laughs> yeah, never seen it. <laughs> or like we watched it some night over it, like an apartment or something, and yeah. like it was, it was. I don't know, but and uh, I knew to expect some Roger Rabbit shit. That's what <laughs> I do. Go with it. But uh, but no, it was it was wild. Like it's uh, it's. I don't know. I don't know what to expect. Like a, a lot of it, a lot of the time I'm like, what is this? This is just throwing shit at a wall. And then after, after a little while though, I do feel like it started to grow on me. Like I got really into Kung Fu. Yeah. Uh, the character, not like I started training, but like it, <laughs> well, it, she uh, kind of, she kind of becomes the hero, even though you'd think gorgeous is going to be the yeah. main, like the final girl or whatever, but gorgeous eats it pretty early on and kung fu ends up kind of being your your uh your hero uh which is one of the many many unexpected things that the movie does yeah it's kind of weird i think expectations play a lot into it like what what you're expecting to see like if you go in and you're looking for this may not be fair but i think if you're if you're going in looking for like a horror movie mm. You might you might be in the wrong mindset to to see this for the yeah. first time because it would blow your mind. Like I feel like I could watch this anytime now and have fun with it. Mm-hmm. Like I know what it is. All of it is insane enough that like I think my initial review was like three and a half because I was just like, I still don't know what I think, but it's <laughs> here it is. The more I actually learn about the movie and the guy who made it the more I appreciate it, the more Mm. I'm like, okay, this is really, this is cool. And this is, I see what he's going for. I understand the mission here. And, uh, and I can appreciate that you're going for like this, the mind of a child kind of thing almost, you know, and it's like this alternate reality, just like how, I don't know. You you can appreciate the fantasy of the whole thing versus like trying to expect like an actual haunted house movie or something. Right. Because this is, I mean, it it gets lumped in as a horror movie. And I guess uh, if you were going to put it in a genre, horror is the one that fits the the most, but that's because it's a haunted house movie, Mm -hmm. but it's not trying to be scary. You know, like it's, it's more, I think a custom I feel like this is more like a haunted house theme park ride than an actual haunted house. You know, this is like That's a good way of putting uh, it. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, a spook a blast if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, because I honestly, I honestly think of this as more of a like fairy tale than a horror film with mm. the, the, the titular house being not unlike, let's say uh, a gin, the gingerbread house and Hansel and Gretel, or, you know, like the, the house out in the woods that you see in, a lot of old uh, old fairy tales and the seven girls all named after their defining tributes kind of brings to mind Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I think this mm-hmm. is very much like a fairy tale, like like a Grimm's fairy tale, like a dark fairy tale, you know, more yeah. than a straight up horror film, you know. But uh, I don't think that those expectations hurt your viewership on it because, again, like as the movie goes on, you don't really you, you, pretty much right from the get go. Todd, me and you talked about this a little bit yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but right from the get go, the movie establishes that you you're you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. <laughs> like right away. Weird, weird choices are being made from the very first scene where the girls are taking pictures of each other to where you immediately have to kind of throw all expectations out the window at that like right right from the get go. 
Yeah, I think uh, my first of all, my thoughts are going to echo Gary's uh, in large part. But I think uh, just to show, uh, you know, the risk of, you know, sounding weird about it, the power of this movie. I've made mention before that Kat, my wife, is kind of over our shit. Like she, she doesn't really watch the movies with me anymore. Um, unless it's kind of what, like she watched Hairspray because she knew Hairspray and it right. had been a while. Same thing with Spider-Man. Like she knew Spider-Man. But for this, uh, she happened to catch like the first few minutes and slowly it kind of drew her to the couch it hip, of like, hypnotized her <laughs> yeah and it was just kind of like okay and then at one point as i mentioned she got up and walked away and that's when uh what's his name got the bucket stuck on yeah, his yeah. butt and, I, <laughs> and that's when i was like you've got to see this and when i showed it to her she was locked in for the rest of the movie she's yeah. like this is this is unbelievable whatever this is and i think i even made mention that she kind of became a film bro where yeah. when the nude scenes popped up, she would just point at the screen and go boobs. boobs. <laughs> I was like, thank, <laughs> you, thank you, honey. Yes. <laughs> uh, Gary, you mentioned about, you know, the more we learn about this guy, the director and, you know, his perspective and like how he made these things and what all the, the imagery in this movie means and how it came about through the, through the storytelling of this, it really kind of just kind of, it really opens you up of, and opens you up to, Oh, this is coming from a child, but it's also being told by someone who was a child and endured a very traumatic experience, the mm -hmm. bombing of Hiroshima and out of that came this sort of warped, beautiful, confusing experience that just kind of this is kind of what is left after someone endures that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and no, it, I, I think it makes sense because it, it reminds one of the movies. Well, this might be a further viewing thing, but I was going to say, like, it seems like a precursor to a lot of types of movies like a Guillermo del Toro would kind of make. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah. God, yeah. Yeah. I thought you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so when you think of a Pan's Labyrinth or something it's like Pan's that, Labyrinth, and, Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it, it's this, I guess. My my initial comment was more like if somebody went up to you was like, "Oh, you like Asian horror movies? You you dig in Ringu in the Grudge? <laughs> you should check out House, right?" And even after those, you'll be like, "What? <laughs> what, what did you just do to me?" Yeah, but uh, no, it keeps you enthralled. I mean, the movie is yeah. entertaining. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I don't think you can hate on the movie. And, and and one thing this whole show does to me is makes me even more so hate being critical of people when you can tell that they put everything into something and you're like this yeah and you, you look at a guy like obiashi and you're like okay this he did exactly what he meant to do yeah now, whether you like it or not that's another thing but this guy succeeded like he put his daughter's brain on screen you know yeah. and he did it like in this in every way that you just mentioned and so uh the movie's entertaining and it, and it 
and you like just as you can't tell what's going to happen from one scene to the next and that's right. exciting and yeah it's just uh i mean so this i is, don't get i get again i don't get the boring thing at all i don't understand i mean this is one of the most chaotic movies that you'll ever see i don't know a better word to describe it than that yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if you've never seen it then at no point during its 88 minute runtime will you be able to guess what's going to happen next like the the, the phrase like that where you hear where somebody say like he zigged when you thought he was going to zag that (laughs) feels like a a phrase that was invented to describe this movie (laughs) because it never does what you're you expect it to do uh like every 30 seconds there's like this tonal whiplash between images of like comedy like goofy stuff like these 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 uh girls just being teenage girls and then a couple scenes later you've got severed limbs spurting geysers of blood you know like it's it's every 30 seconds something wacky happens that where you're like well i didn't see that coming (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know and i think that's a big part of the movie's charm because in creating this movie obayashi was he was willing to visualize the weirder parts of a child's imagination Mm. Uh, in this case is his daughter uh, and there's no rhyme or reason to a child's imagination. So why should there be any rhyme or reason to a film that is trying to recreate that or is inspired by that? Right. You no, know? I, I mean, a perfect example is I, Justin and I were at um, a uh, a wedding yesterday and there was a kid walking around with a notebook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> taking a poll on who would win in a fight, a cupcake with teeth or a chicken wing with big muscly big, arms with big muscly arms and i was on i was on team uh chicken wing i went i went team cupcake yeah all right uh, yeah all i was right. i figured the i see i see where your team. loyalties i know but the fist on the, the fist could punch out the teeth that's true that's but the true. teeth could bite off the fists yeah mm. see but all <laughs> that to say like that's that came out of that kid's brain. Yeah. That's right. What's like an adult wouldn't brain? think of that unless yeah. they were, you know, on drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing about this movie, like no artist works in a bubble, right? Uh, every artist, in- including and maybe especially filmmakers, uh, tend to be influenced by those that came before. But the thing with Nobuhiko Obayashi is that he's he's playing completely by his own set of rules here. Mm. Uh, like Gary mentioned earlier that he he was kind of bored by Japanese cinema so he broke every single rule that had ever been established nothing in house looks like any movie that had come before it uh, or after it for that matter uh, nobody's really even tried to recreate what he does here uh, like I, I can't think of another movie outside of maybe some of his other ones and you know Obayashi has credited Jean-Luc Godard and specifically Breathless as his biggest influence but I don't see a lot of that here personally. And Breathless is a great movie, but it is the most French fucking movie you will ever see. Like, <laughs> And nothing in-house to me remotely resembles that film. Uh, so maybe some of his influence from that or, or on a different level than what you're seeing visually, I guess. I don't know. But I think his biggest influence is his own imagination. Like he is only limited by not, well, he's not even limited by his own imagination, but by the imagination of a child, his daughter, you know? And I think that's Mm. really cool. I don't, I can't think of another film that fully like encompasses a child's imagination the way that this one does, because most of the time it's an adult who is trying to just 
remember what it was like to be a kid. He actually talked yeah. to a kid and wrote down her ideas and visualized them on film. And I think that's really like incredibly unique. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's part of why they, they had issues with like the story of the film. The story doesn't matter in this film. The plot yeah. doesn't matter. I could I could explain the plot to this in about 30 seconds. But House isn't about the story that Obayashi is telling. It's about the way in which he chooses to tell it. It's about the medium more than the message. You know, mm-hmm. that that's that's kind of what he's doing here. Yeah. And that's not to say that he doesn't have a message. Uh, I mean, Todd, I think we you mentioned that you watched that. Uh, there's a really great video essay on the Criterion release of this. Yes. That uh, discusses how this movie was influenced by the theme of the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, because you've got the backstory with Auntie that's very obvious uh, regarding World War II. And I think if I remember right in that essay, you know, he, the way in uh, it's, if you have the Criterion channel, it's, it's streaming on there as well, but it's on the, on the Criterion Blu-ray as a special feature. But this guy who made this video essay, he, uh, it's very short, maybe five minutes or so. Yeah. But he gets, not into, long. He, he uh, gets to some really good points. How, the the girl's innocence in the first half of the film kind of represents life before the atomic bomb in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment at like halfway through, like almost, I think he says it's at the exact halfway moment in the film where Gorgeous looks into a mirror and her reflection becomes Auntie, yeah, which is kind of a merging of two generations, the past and the present, and how everything after that is sort of post- a bomb with the cat itself and the specifically the flash of those eyes being the flash of the a bomb yeah. which they also referenced during the film uh and it's it, so it's clear that obayashi had a message here but that's not necessarily like his number one priority i mean that's yeah. a message that that anti-war message is something that is kind of a through line through his entire filmography um because, you know, as we said before, Obayashi's films are highly influenced by his childhood, where he lived through World War II in Japan, and he came of age in post-war Japan, which was an incredibly difficult place to, to grow up. Yeah. Uh, and House is no exception to that rule. I mean, like I said, Auntie's backstory is integral to the story that the film is telling. Her, her fiancé died during the war. And then everything else that happens is a result of that tragedy and of Auntie's inability to let her life progress past that point, because she's kind of she kind of stopped at that point. Yeah, uh, she's really just been wasting her life in this house where her personal trauma is keeping her stagnant. So it's um, it's really a film about kind of wasted potential and wasted life, and her Auntie's trauma, I think, kind of becomes in a way like a disease that not only ruins her life, but it infects the house itself and it ruins the life of her niece and her niece's friends all because she couldn't move past this tragedy that happened in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Obayashi has something to say here. You know, he's a, he's an, I mean, you guys watched that documentary about the making of the film where, uh, where he's telling the story of it. He's a highly intelligent man. Like oh, he knows yeah. exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that he, he decides that the medium that he wants to use is not just film, but like experimental film. Like he's just, He's throwing everything at the wall, but there is there is meaning to it. Now, whether you need to understand that meaning to enjoy the film, I don't think you do. I think the enjoyment of this film is just the roller coaster ride that is house because yeah. it is it is yeah. a thrill ride, like beginning to end. For sure. Just the insanity. 
Yeah. I don't even think it ever packages it up neatly at the end. Like it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Like it's, I guess, I don't know. It makes me wonder if he has like a really dark side too that we're not seeing. Yeah. Maybe from his, (laughs) well, because even the ant is like having this, like, what is it? The spirit is, she doesn't like them because they have no connection to the war or to the bombing. Yeah. You know? And so, I don't know. That's interesting that like, I wonder if he, like he's hanging out and having fun with all these young people, but like, is he also like kind of in the back of his mind has this like darkness about like, fuck all this, you. You don't know yeah, what it's like. This, I've, seen, the, be dead. This I've seen some shit for their, the disdain of their privilege of having not lived through the war. Yeah. Right. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of like Vietnam veterans and and stuff like that who just couldn't cope and came home to a world that hated them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even seeing them talking about the cat, like the cat is a prominent feature. Mm-hmm. But when they talk about uh, the cat being the symbol of the bomb exploding itself and, you know, looking like that that puff of you know, that cloud, puff yeah. Of, yeah the mushroom looks cloud. like cotton candy it looks like cotton candy which yeah. kind of shows you the mindset of these kids they and, don't understand the yeah the, the gravity of, of what happened exactly and you know that you know when you talk to folks who endured you know certain traumas like war and you know other things that cause ptsd when people who don't understand that oh it looks like cotton candy or something of the similar nature it it can be infuriating and Mm -hmm. if you know for someone who hasn't let go or dealt with or healed properly from from that trauma it can be infuriating yeah i mean you're uh, you're talking about one of the worst atrocities that humans have ever dealt yeah, uh, in the atomic bomb dropping on Hiroshima, yeah. and they're just saying, "Looks like cotton candy." It looks like cotton <laughs> candy. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you guys ready to get into further viewing? Do you have any further viewing uh, entries? This is a tough one. This yes. is a tougher. <laughs> this is a tough one. I to I do. didn't think I had one until just a minute ago. Okay. Should, <laughs> like something like the Guillermo del Toro Taurus yeah. stuff. Like I, I mean, I and I I get where you're work. coming with those where it's using the the backdrop of war to tell a fairy, yeah. a dark fairy tale granted much darker, I think than, than what this does. But uh, yeah, I think, I think you're on a, on a good, on a good track with those. You want to go well, first Gary, or you want me to go or that was basically me going. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. All right. So just everything, everything Guillermo. Let's say Pan's Labyrinth. Like, and... This is like what it sounds like when I'm having sex with my wife. <laughs> yeah. No, I just did. I just went. I just went. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> no, that was that was me. I was in and I went. And that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so Pan's Labyrinth and the Devil's Backbone uh, yeah. are, nice. are, are Gary's picks. So uh, I went a little bit uh, different direction. Uh, shocker. Wow. Um, yeah. What? Imagine that. So uh, from he picked Roger Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from 2008, uh, written by the director who's known for music videos, starring two musicians, with the tagline, "You name it, we shoot it." Is it Belly? No, <laughs> man, I love that movie. Uh, <laughs> fucking love Belly. Um, is it Be Kind Rewind? 
Be Kind Rewind, yeah. directed by Michel Gondry. Yeah, yeah. It, you I, know, did, I rewatched that a couple weeks ago. It's fantastic. Yeah, I you know I recently caught it again, and uh, you know talking about all the imagery of the mind of a child, I feel like Michel Gondry's really tapped into that. Not only like within himself, but I, th- I feel like he brings that out of his actors. Uh, yeah, of course. The I would agree with that. The musicians I'm talking about are, you know, Jack Black and uh, Mostaf, but uh, it's got a great cast and it really kind of, in addition to seeing all of the types of filmmaking techniques that Michel Gondry uses, the film also shows you those techniques being used to make, to make films. And so it's a real kind of meta experience, but also one born from uh you know hardship that these characters are trying to they're you know they're trying striving to save this this small little video store and yeah it's not the bombing of hiroshima but like they're they're really yeah not quite it's close but yeah <laughs> uh but you know they're really really trying to get this thing done uh amidst having nothing uh except their creativity and they just pour it into these projects, these sweeted films, and you get this stuff that the community ends up rallying behind. Kind of like House, where like the critics didn't dig it, but man, the public sure did. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. So be kind, rewind. That's my that's my choice. It's a fun pick. Yeah. Uh, I had a really hard time with this one, and then when I was, uh, I mean, other than you know, I like to do further viewing, and uh, oftentimes with movies that I think are, if you enjoyed this, uh, but you want to watch more of this director's stuff or another of the actor in this stuff, things like that, I like to use that. But unfortunately, a lot of that stuff is not available here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I read an article on the British Film Institute's website about this movie, and that article called this. The Evil Dead meets Yellow Submarine. Yes. And then I yeah. and I cannot think of a better triple feature than Evil Dead, Yellow Submarine, and House. Like that's a that's a hell of a night right there, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm going with. Evil Dead and Yellow Submarine. But you have to watch them all. You have to watch yeah. all three of them for it to work. <laughs> I actually so kept what... I actually kept uh bringing up Evil Dead as Kat and I were watching it. I was like yeah. I'm getting some major Evil Dead vibes here. <laughs> and you would think that Sam Raimi could be influenced by this, but there's no way he could have seen it. Yeah. You yeah. know, before Evil Dead. Right. <laughs> Why do you guys think Mr. Togo turns into bananas at the end of the movie? Why? Yeah, yeah. What's that? What's the symbolism there? Um, I was going to bring that up, too. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what is. happened in that scene. Like, it turns into a pile of bananas. I don't know. It is kind of a bonkers move narratively. I wish sure. I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> like, why did nobody ask him that? Did he not explain Mr. Togo turning into bananas? <laughs> he had to have at some point. It makes me think of it makes me think of like uh when the guardians and um gar- the guardians of the galaxy are like sneaking up on Thanos and he gets the drop on him and like like mantis unravels and uh you know drax turns into a bunch of cubes and falls apart (laughs) he just turned into bananas yeah and and like quill's gun like shoots bubbles and stuff but yeah like this guy like because they make a big deal about oh the the man is coming to help us and i was Mm -hmm. like the guy who got a bucket stuck on his ass you're waiting for that dude (laughs) to save you okay but at the same time like apparently the spirit 
maybe felt threatened by it and was just like, I know bananas. Like, okay. Yeah. I, why I bananas? Guess. Why not? I don't stop, know. Stop the threat before it gets there. I don't know. I, I'm, I just, I just found a, like a Reddit thread about the banana thing. I was just like searching and somebody on Reddit said, he said he hated melons and liked bananas. The guy turned into a skeleton and Togo turned into a pile of bananas. Classic horror trope. Sure. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, that, um, that old chestnut. <laughs> I do love the uh, the scene of the the skeleton dancing too. There are so yeah. many scenes in this. I just want to be like, I want to talk about specific scenes, but then we'll be here all day. Right. But I man, love I the lo- skeleton in the background. In dancing, the background, but... just getting it, just <laughs> getting down. <laughs> the uh, you know, Ty West has an interview on that Criterion as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty cool, and uh, and just. Uh, some notes from what of what he's talking about. He just talks about loving the seat, this movie, but uh, and and then they also had the clip of uh, or I found the clip of uh, Bill Hader visiting the Criterion offices or something and going through movies, and he picks out House, and he's like, "Oh, this movie is uh, f- fucking great." Like he's like, "This is just like whatever you think it is, it's not. Just you gotta watch this movie." And he like unzips the hoodie and he was like. I didn't even plan on this, but this is what I got. He has like the low, the red shirt with the cat face. Nice. On it. Yeah. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Ty West was talking about like how he was like, this is, I, I think the most original film I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could, I, it's hard to argue against that. Uh, yeah. Cause say, he's not it is, this one, I feel like this phrase really, is true is that this is unlike any other movie that I've ever seen. Like it truly is like, there's nothing else you can compare it to. It is just wholly original and wholly unique. And uh, it's just like, it's, it's why I like showing this movie to people because there's no frame of reference. I don't care how many movies you've seen. I don't care how many thousands of movies you've seen. Not a single one of them is going to conjure up images of what you see in this movie. Like this is, it's like it's yeah. almost like it's its whole its whole extra genre, you know. Just he, he talks that, that he talks only this how, movie exists in. He talks about how it is like the literal POV of a child that he feels like it's just like manic, emotionally experimental. It's melodramatic, and it's just like, uh, like he's just like how like a kid could be like enthralled by something that immediately frightened by something yeah. like you know yep. just and all around and he's like and i've never seen a movie that's used like i think every fucking camera trick ever yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just like all in one movie mm-hmm. and just like throw them all in here he also ta- talks about how it's crazy that like uh you know he was like nowadays he's like i don't know if you guys know this but like horror it's like they'll hire commercial directors all day long because oh, they yeah. just need it to all look the same and smooth and just easy. And just like, this is what we expect. And this is, you know, this is what you get. It's milk toast, just like plain Jane. Like this is, this is the movie. So commercial directors are great for that. He was like, but then this Japanese time period, they chose the commercial director to make the fucking wildest shit you've ever yeah. seen in your entire <laughs> life. Yeah. Like, what is this? He's just like, he said that he thinks that it's like maybe it's the first art horror film ever. He said that that like he mm-hmm. and he knows his friends are like that's that's like some stuff they try to achieve 
all their old things, but mm-hmm. never like to this level. Like yeah. it just goes so so crazy. Yeah. Well, House was not officially screened here in the U.S. until Janus Films bought the rights to the film in early 2010 and began screening it across the country. I think the very first screening was at the IFC Center in New York City. And then the the Criterion Collection, who works very closely with Janus, uh, released it on DVD and Blu-ray later that year. And that's really where the cult phenomenon of House began, uh, because it had not really nobody in America had ever seen it before these screenings began. Uh, In the decade plus since it first screened in the U.S., though, House has become uh, considered a like a bona fide cult classic. Uh, in Japan, however, House was just the beginning of uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi's career. Remember, this is his first feature film. But throughout the 80s, he continued to make feature-length films and honed his filmmaking style to be a little bit more in tune with the mainstream audiences. Um, I mean, he never really abandoned his avant-garde tendencies you know uh, but he directed a series of popular coming of age stories during that time uh continued to work throughout the 90s and the 2000s and then uh and then in 2016 obayashi was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer and only given a few months to live but despite that diagnosis he got to work on a on a film called hanagatami the one we mentioned earlier a passion fro- project that had been conceived before house so this is a movie that had been in the back of his mind for 40 years at this point Jeez. and like many of his films that movie was inspired by the director's own childhood set to the backdrop of the second world war and it was released in 2017 to great critical acclaim with critics praising its experimental and psychedelic visuals and editing along with its strong anti-war message Obayashi's final film was called The Labyrinth of Cinema, released in 2019. Another anti-war fantasy. Uh, It's a story about three present-day moviegoers who find themselves transported back to 1945, just before the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Nobuhiko Obayashi died on April 10th, 2020, at the age of 82, died from lung cancer. And while, you know, apart from House, his films are rarely seen outside of his native Japan, his playful, inventive, and personal work will always be there, waiting for new generations to discover it. I I really do hope that one day we get uh, more of his films released here, uh, because all the reviews of of really all of his films, especially uh, Hanagatami, is like, people love it. I've seen images from it, but you you can't find it here, unfortunately. So I, I hope that because House is such a popular film, that one day, one day we'll get more of his films released here in the U.S. and around the world outside of Japan where more people can experience it. Because, man, there's one thing about him that you can't argue is that he has an imagination like like nobody else. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for sure. and who wouldn't want to see more mentioning. examples of that? It's worth mentioning, too. I don't think I said this, but like Toho was not happy with how popular it was really like supposedly like they they wanted him to have like success but like niche success yeah like they wanted they wanted it to be something like they didn't want they didn't want people to expect them to make more of this movie exactly (laughs) like this yeah exactly they thought it was uh there he said that guy's name was uh or something like that i'm sorry i forget now but they, that uh, the writer was saying that he he talked to him and the guy was like I he ruined cinema he's ruined it <laughs> like he's, he's he's like he's like because this is now it's too popular or something like basically he was angry it was too popular the kids loved it and that it was going to be huge and 
they didn't want it to be that huge and they didn't want to have to change everything like what justin was just saying and mm-hmm. uh <laughs> and i thought that was interesting and then he said you know like if you go and look like uh i forget what year it was but there was a, a big japanese cinema thing called a uh, uh kinema jumpo uh it was a magazine that ran like this is a few years back or something they ran like young Japanese filmmakers, like your top 10 favorite movies. And like house was the most at number one. Wow. That like people were just like this inspired, like a whole generation of filmmakers. Yeah. How could it not? Okay. You know, cause. It's... And there's, there's so much bonkers stuff in it that even if you are inspired by certain elements, you could probably crank out certain projects and not even repeat yourself. There's yeah. just, there's so much in there. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I don't know, man, commercial guy was an auteur. He was. Whoops. Hey, <laughs> I don't happened, well, I mean, he was an auteur <laughs> before he was a commercial guy. And then, he, but he just, he just stuck to his guns, you know, and he just kept making the kind of stuff that he wanted to make. Yeah, uh, the daughter, when they talked about that, the producers not liking it and stuff like that, and how the critics panned it, like how he took it. And uh, she said, he was just kind of like, uh, this is this is what happens when new ideas are born. Trips people up. They can't yeah. wrap their brains around it. Yeah. <laughs> and so and then 40-some-odd years later, here we are still talking about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So good for that guy. He yeah. fucking nailed it. I, I don't know. Uh, Robert Edwards is another YouTube essayist I watched that was uh, he 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 described it as art from innocence. Huh. He mm. broke the rules and that changed them. And yeah. I, I thought those were like some cool lines from his thing that I that's cool. I really dug this movie. By the way, as obscure as it feels like it should be, when I was searching around YouTube on stuff about it, fucking PewDiePie has covered it. Wow. <laughs> so. I don't know yeah. if if you don't know who PewDiePie is, then good wake for you, up. honestly. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Don't watch the video; it'll annoy the shit out of you. It's like him <laughs> and his wife or something, and it is. I don't have a politically correct term I could use for it, but the uh, <laughs> the but that video alone, just them watching House, and it so it plays like certain little clips at the bottom and they're just talking about it while it's going on it's like their favorite quote unquote favorite horror movie um but i mean that video has millions like literally millions yeah. of views yeah so, i mean this movie has definitely like in the last decade become a huge cult classic which is is, is pretty impressive because a lot of times cult cult movies take a lot like decades to which I mean, granted, this movie's been out for decades, but before 2010 or so, nobody, most people in America had never heard of this movie, mm. <laughs> like at all. I had not, yeah, I had not heard about it until Criterion started doing or Janice Film started doing those uh, those screenings, uh, because I first heard about it when it screened in Nashville, and, and I think if I if I remember correctly, and and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think that the guy who created the iconic poster that's used for the Criterion. The, the cover on that of the orange one with the cat, mm-hmm. which is based on imagery from the original, you know, uh, campaign, the, the promotions for when it came out. But the guy who created that poster, I think it was Sam Smith. Um, not the singer, different one. Oh, I was about to say, <laughs> uh, he created that image originally for a series of screenings, midnight screenings of that movie in Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. And, and it just became like the image that the film is known by now. Well, I mean, I had, you know, I was super unfamiliar with this. 
And I, Justin, I think I mentioned it to you yesterday of like, had no idea, but you know, once I did finally see the image, I was like, Oh, I've seen this poster. Yeah. Like, I, it, you know, the, the marketing, I mean, we've talked about, we talked about it in the episode of like the novelization, the manga trading cards, the fashion show, the music, the whole thing, it was all put out there, you know, and it, it did a great job <laughs> getting you to know something about this film <laughs> And uh, yeah, it, it's it's an it's an iconic look, man. Yeah, it's Absolutely. it's hard to not love it after you know like everything that went into it and what the goal was and and that sort of thing. I also think it's got to be like such a such a cool thing that if you're like the daughter who is still around and like yeah uh, her potential kids and stuff, that is like what a cool story that like yeah, my dad took my thoughts as a child and put them on screen put them on and, screen yeah. yeah yeah i just love that that idea it's a it's a cool concept very well i think that's it for this one guys i think we have we, uh we, we stumbled we, upon a classic with the we roulette did. it yeah. did like we hardcore did core classic I absolutely feel like. yeah this was a good one this is a good roulette episode like i said this is the type of movie that like the roulette was created for mm. uh you know uh i i wish we could do a whole series in obayashi's films but unfortunately most of them you can't you just can't get here so we can't watch them so it's hard for us to get any information about them or even see them yeah. uh, but i'm also, glad we were uh, able to discuss this one also further uh proof that jaws is really the greatest film of all time right yeah it, it inspired is, house it inspired which house. changed jaws changed japanese cinema yep uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So let's talk about what we're going to be, uh, well, what we're going to be talking about on the next episode of Cinema Shock. Uh, well, what two of us are going to be talking about on the next episode of Cinema Shock? Because uh, uh, life we leave. One one of them got fired. One of us got fired from the show. <laughs> Turns out, yeah, one of us it. was murdered. <laughs> no, we are. Uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're not going into a long form series like we normally do. Uh, just. For scheduling reasons, this, we got the holidays coming up and schedules are weird and people are traveling and Todd's going to Europe for a, like a fucking month. Uh, <laughs> to be I fair, been... I did pitch that we did a murder storyline with Todd, but nobody was down with it. <laughs> I, I did not reject that idea. I think that's, that is a lot of fun. But just to you know, give folks a peek behind the curtain, it's um, my wife and I, it's our 15th wedding anniversary. It's my 40th birthday. Uh, she's spreading her grandmother's ashes. We're... We're Christmas, New Year's. We're doing it all in this one trip to uh, to the UK. So yeah, yeah. This is this is kind of a big one for us. So anyway, Todd's not going to be on the show for yeah. A while, so I'm going to be gone for a while. That's yeah, what we're saying. So so leave your five star reviews now so that we know <laughs> so we know what you really think. And we have evidence That's you know, it. for it. So uh, so instead of doing a long form series like we normally do after a roulette episode like this one, uh, we are instead just going to. Do a few more roulette episodes just for shits and giggles. Me and Gary are just gonna just gonna have some fun and just choose some random movies that aren't part of a larger series. So as we always do, we will pick these at random, just like we picked out Halzu, which by the way, we have not mentioned this on this whole episode, guys, but Halzu is our one hundredth episode of Cinema Shock. Hey. Uh, I feel oh. like we should have made a bigger deal about that, but we didn't. But one hundred episodes, that's pretty that's pretty. We did good. have Doc Stitz and argue with you about that. Uh, yeah, he's wrong. Through me, through me. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Doctor Doctor Stinson, but Halzu is our 100th episode. Yeah, but 
But I will say, this is cool that we had our 100th episode. I wish we had planned it a little bit better so that we knew that. But ahead of time, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, for episode 101, we're going to be doing another roulette. So let spin the wheel. Gary, you get to spin the wheel. Todd, you can't touch it because you are leaving us. Oh, Gary get to do it twice in a row. It sounds like what I said to my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Spin that wheel, Gary. Go. All right, spin it. All right, so the fates have picked Heathers. We're watching Heathers from 1989. You guys have seen this. Well, it doesn't matter whether you've seen it before, Todd. You're not going to be here for this. Uh, (laughs) Have you seen it? Have you seen Heathers, Todd? I think I have. I'm pretty sure. I think I've seen it. I think I've seen it at least once. Okay. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This is embarrassing for me to say, but I don't think I've ever seen this movie. Oh, good. That's fun. That's fun. There's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm glad that you're going to get to experience it because I really like this movie and I think it's a ton of fun. So we're going to get into the story behind Heathers from 1989. Uh, You can find it streaming online. I'm sure it's pretty easy to find. That one's uh, pretty popular these days. So Join us for that episode, and uh, we'll see what we can find out about how Heathers was made. Yay! I'm excited. I do like some Christian Slater and his uh, tips to be Jack Nicholson that never came <laughs> to fruition. He tries. <laughs> he does. <laughs> uh, and until... Wait, we're, we're not to that part yet. Where can you guys be found on the internet? <laughs> oh, me? Yeah. Uh, sure, you, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I bet this is Gary Horn, all spelled out on Instagram and X. If you like wrestling, I host, I host the This Is Pro Wrestling podcast at This Is Pro Wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW Show on Instagram. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance, and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now uh, on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. And you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram and Letterboxd. Uh, the show is at cinema underscore shock on all those social media platforms. Uh, you can, of course, find all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord, our merch, uh, T-shirts and such. Uh, we've got holiday seasons coming up. So, you know, buy your buy your friends, buy your family a Cinema Shock T-shirt and they will say, what the hell is Cinema Shock? Uh, but you can find <laughs> what those is a podcast <laughs> on our website at cinemashock.net. Uh, as always, please share this episode with any of your friends who you think may enjoy it in any way that you know how. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny eats unmarried young girls. It is Ugh. the only time he can wear the keys. No, I hate that. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>